name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. I grew up in a very, well, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find uh, over the course of my life that I had sort of an ever-expanding sense of what was going on in the world uh, and how it worked. Uh, I started out in this very little section of a city near Portland, Maine. The little section was called Pride's Corner, and it really was. It, it was a corner. Uh, there was an intersection of a sort of major secondary road uh, and then some very local roads and, and, you know, a few houses and a little schoolhouse around there. If I wanted to tell people where I lived, I told them I lived on Route 302, about a quarter of a mile from the outdoor drive-in, uh, which I understand is still there and still operating. Uh, but growing up in this very small town uh, in elementary school, uh, we were at best, uh, my family, lower class folk. We had very little culture. I had very little in the way of manners. Uh, but then when it came time to go to junior high, I had to go over to the big city. Uh, and some of my friends had a little more culture and a little more sophistication. Uh, one of my friends, Tom, uh, Tom's father was a doctor. And I remember going to Tom's big house, uh, meeting Tom's father and saying, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Deerberg. Well, as Brent will tell you, he wouldn't be surprised to hear that Tom pulled me over aside a little later and said, Ross, you got to say Dr. Deerberg. So the little things I learned growing up. Uh, and then poor kid goes off to uh, boarding school uh, where I learned about things like demitas uh, from, a very, from a very snobbish uh, housemaster's wife who made fun of those of us who didn't know what a demitas was. Uh, and where one night we were all sitting there and some outside troop was coming to the school to put on the Mikado. Uh, and we were sitting there having coffee after dinner. And I allowed as how I didn't know what the Mikado was. And he said, well, don't you know about Gilbert and Sullivan? I said, who's that? So my housemaster said, Ross, you don't do your homework tonight. You go see the Mikado. So sort of this expanding world. Uh, then uh, after college, off to law school, uh, actually, while I was there at that school, uh, somebody came and preached the gospel. A man named Peter came and talked about Jesus Christ in a way I wanted to know who this Jesus was. So my world was expanding, uh, not only culturally, but also to know, oh, wow, there is a God who is a good God who's come among us. I did not... Uh, become a Christian right away. I did not confess faith right away. I went off to college and did what we all do in college, or a lot of us did in college. But then I, uh, when I got to law school, I rented a room from this wonderful uh, widow lady. Uh, and one Sunday, one of her sons uh, was home, and he said, hey, Ross, do you want to go to church and meet some chicks? And I said, sure. <laughs> Jonathan was like that. Uh, but I went to this wonderful, beautiful old stone Episcopal church. And it was uh, something I didn't know about. It was something called Advent. Uh, and they sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which was sort of this evangelistic thing to me. It was just so beautiful. But again, I didn't get it. I went for the day and I, I left. And, but then it was the following summer. I was walking down. It was on Pine Street. 
on a Saturday morning in Portland, Maine, wondering, what is the meaning of life? And that vision of Peter who preached uh, in our chapel when I was in boarding school and another student who had accepted Jesus, who had decided to follow Jesus. I remembered them. It's like the Lord brought them to my mind. Uh, and that was the moment of my conversion. Yes, I need Jesus. So in all my theological wisdom, I tried to figure out, well, I guess I have to go to church. Where do I go? Well, the Catholic church was the true church. They got it all wrong. The Anglicans kept it straight. So I'll go to one of their churches. <clears throat> and thus I became part of this worldwide Anglican communion. From Pride's Corner, little kid not knowing much, not much culture, not being, having been exposed to much, to being part of now this worldwide group of people who believed in Jesus uh, and who uh, <clears throat> worship in a certain way and wear these weird clothes. Uh, as a canon in the church, I'm entitled to wear red buttons uh, and red piping. Uh, Mother Wendy wearing a chasuble today. That's what that's called. So we do all these weird things uh, and wear these weird clothes, but we are part of one of 30,000 denominations in the world. <clears throat> but my exposure continued because a few years later, I went down to Greenwich, Connecticut, and I heard a guy named Bishop Festo Cavendera. Uh, I had never heard an African preach. I may never have met an African up to that time in my life. I don't remember the whole sermon, but I do remember the absolute conviction with which Bishop Festo preached, his absolute certainty of the love of God. And I remember it was the first time I'd really had pointed out to me that passage in Hebrews where uh, <clears throat> at the crucifixion of Jesus, God split the curtain in the temple, the curtain behind which the Holy of Holies was placed, and that we all have entrance into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God because of Jesus' sacrifice. Shortly thereafter, I was <clears throat> given a book by a guy named Kefa Sampangi. Uh, he was either Ugandan or Kenyan, I'm not sure, but it was the story of the persecution under Idi Amin uh, back in the 60s and 70s in Uganda, and the amazing faith of the people who lived under that persecution, and the amazing miracles that God did. My world... Uh, being part of this worldwide communion and the variety uh, of people around the world who believed in Jesus and have something to say to all of us. And then 40, 50 years later, I found myself being ordained a priest by the Archbishop of Kenya. We belong to this worldwide communion. <clears throat> Two years ago, I retired from being a lawyer and uh, I became the canon to the ordinary uh, which <clears throat> the ordinary is a bishop. Uh, and a canon is really just someone who's a close advisor to the bishop. And the canon to the ordinary has uh, certain jobs. I help the bishop with just about everything. I'm kind of his right-hand man. Uh, I help him with the ordination process, solving problems, uh, ministering to clergy, 
helping uh, churches search for uh, new clergy, etc. And of course, I serve a bishop from England. Worldwide communion. And within our diocese, uh, our diocese is quite international. We have four Kenyan churches. We have three Ugandan churches. And we have a Chinese priest, uh, a guy named Jerome He, who lives down in New York. He's not leading a church right now, but he's helping uh, some clergy in mainland China. And we've actually had calls, Zoom calls, with him and with somebody from the Anglican Church in North America office. And on the line, because Jerome speaks very little English, is his cousin Millie in mainland China on the Zoom call. In the diocese, we worship in a variety of places, right? Some brick buildings which are consecrated uh, as churches with organs and stationary altars. Some of those buildings owned, some rented. One building, one beautiful building, was actually built from the ground up by the rector with his own hands. Uh, We worship in English and other languages. We worship with traditional hymnody and with contemporary praise music, with excellent choirs and with praise bands of different sizes and qualities. Some churches even are still just getting music from a CD and some speakers. And we're just one diocese in one big communion among 30,000 denominations. Well, maybe this Anglican thing, this worldwide Anglican communion, uh, these things like these vests, the sacraments, uh, the vestments, maybe this is all new to you. Maybe celebrating Advent was new to you. But there's something about it, perhaps, that has spoken to you. And one of the things we do as Anglicans is to follow a church year, right? We actually begin four weeks before Christmas, and we say that's the beginning of the church year, and we take this time of Advent. Advent means coming to. We're waiting for Jesus to come to us. And then we have Christmas, the incarnation. And now today we celebrate uh, the epiphany, and then Throughout the next five months, five or six months, up until the end of May, we will hit the major events in Jesus' life, right? By the time we're done, we will have gone through his death, resurrection, ascension, and even up to Pentecost in the first six months of the year because we walk through the year with Jesus. We pay attention to his life. We don't just observe, but we also enter into Uh, this life of Jesus. Well, that was a a long introduction, wasn't it? But today we recognize, we celebrate where this whole thing all began. This whole thing way back before this Anglican communion ever existed. We celebrate after a baby born in Bethlehem in a humble setting, a stable, a cave. Some say it's a cave because Bethlehem set on a hill and houses would be built on the hillside and some of the people would put a cave just below their house and that would be for their animals, a a stable or a cave. And there's actually the Church of the Nativity uh, is on uh, one of those hills today. 
uh, and there is a cave just below it. And some today would tell you that's where Jesus was born. Of course, we don't know for sure. But this baby born in this humble circumstance, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the promised Messiah to the people of Israel. To reveal himself to us fully, God used a particular kind of language, if you will. A language we could understand, the language being a human being. A human being just like us who could speak and act in certain ways to communicate to us who God is. Communicate to us in word and deed. And then before Jesus had really done much more than eat and sleep, before he had probably uttered a word, God used another kind of language to reveal this Messiah to these few men from Persia. Gentiles. Well, what, what, what are the Gentiles? Gentiles are basically everybody in the world who isn't Jewish. Everybody as the Jews would say, outside the covenant. Everybody far off some of the terminology we hear in the scriptures. But God used another language to speak to these Gentiles, these uh, magi, as they're called in the Bible. These pretty, pretty bright people, uh, pretty uh, knowledgeable men of philosophy, a little bit of, you know, early medicine, natural science. Uh, they were sort of soothsayers, uh, a little bit like interpreters of dreams, maybe prophets in some sense. And they were astronomers and astrologers. As astronomers, they studied the skies. They studied the heavens. They knew where the constellations were. They, they would recognize when something new happened. As astrologers, they tried to read the stars to help them understand and interpret their world, perhaps even to see into the future. Well, like many others in their area at that time, in that part of the world, they were looking for one who would become the king. Looking for one who would become king. Note their question when they come to Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They had, and God answered their question. God showed them the way in a most peculiar way, in a language that they could understand. God used a star or maybe a comet, but a language these astronomers could understand, these astrologers could understand. There's a new star, a new comet in the sky. And they interpreted that to mean the king had come. And they were able to follow that star because that's how they operated. That's the language they spoke in, if you will. Does it seem a little crazy? Maybe. But how about really brilliant? Brilliant that God did this. In a language that they could understand, he led them to Jesus. This is the one. The message to these magi, to these 
Gentiles is this is your king too. This is the king for the whole world. Well, God continues to speak, doesn't he? This is a, these are languages of love. This is the way God shows his love to the world. This is the way God showed his love to the Gentiles by using their language and leading them to Jesus. And he continues to speak in other languages of love here in this story because the Magi give Jesus the gifts. And the gifts, in a way, are language too because they give him gold, right? For foretold in the Isaiah passage. They give him gold, which signifies kingship, the one who was to rule over all, not just the king of the Jews, but the one who was to rule over all, all people and all nations, king of kings and lord of lords. They give him frankincense. Frankincense, incense signifying what? Priesthood priesthood. The priests were the ones who offered sacrifice and offered up prayers for the people. And of course, Jesus becomes our great high priest, right? The one who offers the sacrifice and the one who continues to this day to intercede on behalf of the saints, praying for us to the Father to this day at this very moment. And then strangely enough for this little baby, this little child, they bring myrrh. It's a burial ointment, myrrh. Why in the world would you bring myrrh to a baby? But of course signifying that this child's death would be a significant event in the history of the world. Jesus, both priest and in his death, victim. The message here, this baby will be king of all and will make an offering as priest of himself, as victim for the whole world. And we hear John tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God, by revealing Jesus to the Magi through these languages is revealing that Jesus is the savior of the world, the king of the world, the Lord of all. So God spoke uh, to these folks in these languages, if you will. And God still, still speaks to us of his love. He speaks to us today uh, in language. In fact, maybe you've heard of the book by Gary Chapman. I haven't read it. Uh, but it's this book about the five loves, right? That men and women speak and understand emotional love in five languages. Words of affirmation, quality time, giving and receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Well, God still speaks these languages today. And of course, we see it. He affirms us. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. He 
says that to Jesus, and in Jesus, we have that same affirmation. God gives us quality time. He's with us always and promises never, ever to forsake us. God gives us himself and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God gives us physical touch in the sacraments week by week in the bread and body uh, and blood of Jesus. And of course, his greatest love language is an act of service, his self-sacrifice. And so this worldwide, unwieldy, wildly diverse body of Christ arose from the life and death of this child and continues to this day. This child is for you and for me and for everyone else everywhere in the world. St. Paul tells us at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians that it was God's purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus, in heaven and on earth. And we see in Revelation, don't we? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, every tribe and nation. God revealed Jesus to be the savior of the whole world, every tribe and nation. So God revealed something of himself to a boy from a hick town in a chapel that no one would have expected him to be in. God began the process of drawing that boy to himself to be part of a worldwide fellowship of believers. And he's continued to reveal himself to me since then. Has he revealed himself to you? Have you received his love language? Is he continuing to reveal himself to you? Maybe through little or big epiphanies? Because after all, it's not a one-time revelation, is it? God is so much more. God is more than we can comprehend. God is more than we can understand. We can never fully uh, enter into, never fully know God. There's always more. Well, one more thing. Our culture, our world is spiritually starved. It's unmoored. It's adrift. Looking for only what God can give, but looking to other sources. Trying to find meaning in work, trying to find meaning in relationships, trying to find meaning in politics, material goods, witchcraft, astrology, spirituality, and more. What language will God use for this culture? What language is our culture speaking? What language does our culture need to hear? Can we discover those languages and translate for them the love language 
of God. Jesus for the world. I want to just close uh, with two prayers for mission that you would find in our Book of Common Prayer, the uh, morning prayer. Oh God, you've made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.